So I want to ask you a question, and it uh, has to do with our study so far in Corinthians. If you were to think of one word that would describe the character issue most concerning to Paul in the Corinthian church, from what we've learned so far in this letter, what would that word be? Pride. I heard it. Pride. Just think about the issues that we've talked about so far. We just got through talking about, in the last several weeks, their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Before that, was their right to take their brother to court. Their right to divorce an unbelieving spouse. Their right to align themselves with whoever they saw most powerful, whether that would be Paul or Apollos or Cephas. It's an issue of, of pride. The Corinthians, as I've said before, were not writing to Paul to humbly request his insight on issues. They were giving their opinion and asking for his approval. It was a prideful pursuit of personal rights that they felt were privileges of the Christian life. And I want you to understand how much the the culture contributed to, to this issue in their life, in the church. Not because the culture is necessarily evil, but that culture helped facilitate some of these selfish desires, which is true in our culture as well. In fact, I want you to listen closely to the similarities between what was happening in the Corinthian church and what happens in the church in America today. I might even go as far as to say that 1 Corinthians may be the most relevant letter in the entire New Testament for us today in our world. If you think about Corinth, as we talked about in the beginning, it is and was at that time considered to kind of be the melting pot of the Western world, just like America is today. Because of its location and its geography, you had all kinds of people coming from all kinds of cultures with all kinds of religious practices. It was a part of that city's culture. And because of that, there was a necessary degree of tolerance that allowed everything to to coexist in some level of harmony, to the point where every man kind of did what was right in his own eyes. And because of that, there was the idea of kind of making your faith personal. Uh, In fact, the, the Christian faith becoming kind of a private affair, much like perhaps we see in our world today where we talk about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To the point that I might leave my church, even my marriage, and take that personal Savior with me wherever I choose to go. The Christian life had become a private affair. But it's based on opinion that's rooted in a spirit of independence. My right to determine what's best for me. It's selfish pride hidden behind the veil of Christian freedom. And it's this issue of pride that undergirds everything that we've walked through in Corinthians so far. And I believe our passage this morning is no exception. Some of you have looked ahead and you've seen where we're going. You're thinking, I'm real interested to see how Todd's going to dance around this issue. (laughs) Women wearing veils, I mean, come on, how's this going to work, right? I even asked Roger to cover for me this weekend, and he respectfully declined. I don't understand it. But in all seriousness, I I, I sincerely mean this. If we follow the context of this letter, and and we keep this issue of pride in mind, and we see how it carries over into this particular 
part of Paul's letter, we'll see that his instructions are very clear, that this is really not that difficult. And in fact, what he has to say has very important relevance in our lives today. So we're going to see that together as we walk through it with each other. So let's begin with a word of prayer. God, as we come and open up your word and seek some clarity on what is a very debated, controversial, and somewhat divisive passage that we would see just the opposite, (laughs) that it would be very clear, very unifying, and ultimately very glorifying of who you are and your design in this world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we will begin in verse 2, where we left off last. And just look at that first uh, verse as Paul begins this new section, this new topic. He says in verse 2, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Paul kind of begins this section with an encouragement that has a, a qualifier. He says, I praise you. But I want you to know, I I want you to continue to learn and grow. You need to remember that that Paul has a a close connection with the Corinthian church. He led many of these people to faith. He he saw most of them uh, grow and begin to learn about that newfound faith. He was with them for a period of at least three years. So he lived among them and he knew that although they had Uh, come to know Christ, that they still had a lot to learn. You may may remember back in chapter 3, he calls them babes in Christ, right? He says, you should be drinking, I mean, you should be eating meat, spiritual food, but instead I'm giving you spiritual milk. They're still very immature in their faith, and I'm convinced that this issue of selfish pride is what's stunting their spiritual growth. And so Paul is trying to help them understand how to overcome this issue of pride in order to grow in their faith. And so the instructions that he will now give are are based on what he says in verse 3. Look at that with me. In verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. One of the keys to understanding this passage is to try to determine, is Paul talking about men and women in general, or or is he speaking specifically about husbands and wives? Now, there's a lot of debate and opinion on that. I'll tell you up front that my opinion, he's speaking specifically to husbands and wives. And one of the reasons is found in this passage. He says there in the beginning, he says, Christ is the head of every man. See the, the general context, Christ in the head of every man but look at what he says next and the man is the head of a woman see i i don't have the role of headship in your home that's not my responsibility but i do have that role of headship in my home this verse along with several others that we'll see along the way leads me to believe that paul is speaking specifically about the relationship between a husband and a wife But even if you see it differently, that's okay, because the main point is still the same. Paul is speaking about a divinely ordained order of creation. And within that order is the responsibility of headship and submission. Look again at verse 3, where he talks about how Christ has the role of headship. 
all mankind the role of submission. Then the man, and I believe in this context, the husband has the role of headship. The woman, in response, has a role of submission. God has a role of headship. Christ has the role of submission. As we hear that, we can understand that there's, there's not a, an intended difference of value here because of that last point, right? God in his headship is not superior over Christ in his submission, is he? Then neither is it within the relationship between a husband and a wife. These are roles where headship speaks of a sacrificial, self-giving love. And where submission speaks of a God-honoring respectful love christ sacrificed his life and we honor that through humble faith and trust in him husbands are called to sacrificially love their wives and and wives in response respect and honor their husbands it's difference in roles within the order of creation while maintaining the value of the person because there's unity. Just think about God and Christ being separate in their roles, but one and the same. God, and the, God is the Father, Christ is the Son, the Spirit, all indwell in perfect, undivided fellowship. In the same way, we can look at a, a husband and wife in their different roles, united in that one flesh relationship of marriage. Different roles, equal value. All a part of God's design and and see the beauty of his design is that the goodness is built into it so that when we live in accordance to that to that design we experience the fullness of the beauty that all he created it to be and when we go outside of that design is where we find the path that leads to destruction and we hear the temptation of satan who's always done it from the garden on trying to convince you that the goodness is actually outside of god's design That somehow he's withholding something from you because there's something inherent in his design that's not good for you. Which is a lie. Because the goodness is built into the design. You see, that seems to be what's happening in Corinth. Take a look at verse 4. He talks about this issue of dress and he says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head, let her cover her head. Let me say up front that the main point of this passage is not the role of women in the life of the church as it relates to praying and prophesying. That's not the main point. Now, it even implies that that's, that's important. That's a part of their responsibilities. But it doesn't speak to this issue. It's speaking to the manner in which they carry that out. Don't forget, what's the main problem within the life of the Corinthian church? Pride. So let's see how that issue carries on into this passage. Now, we could spend all day debating about whether Paul's talking about veils or hairstyles or clothing or whatever the case may be, and it would do us absolutely no good. Because it really doesn't matter what it is. 
What it communicates is far more important than what it is. Because here's the reality. Clothing in every culture has always been a form of nonverbal communication. Our culture being no exception. If I were to walk two people up here, nobody says a word. Nobody says anything about them. One is wearing a suit and tie, business suit. The other one's wearing a custodian uniform. Which one, according to our culture, would you most likely say is in charge? It's the guy wearing the business suit. It doesn't mean that one's more valuable than the other, but the clothing says something about authority. Now, if I were to do the same thing, march two people up here, one of them's wearing a coat and tie, the other one's wearing a full-length dress, what would that tell you? One's most likely be the man. You're right. It says something about gender. <laughs> I'm glad he's listening. Okay? So nothing's being said. Okay, let me give you one more example. One walks in here, has a badge a uniform, and a gun. The other one walks in and has a tool belt, hammer, and nails. What does that tell you? Their occupation. So in all these examples, the clothing is a form of nonverbal communication that makes a statement about something. It's true in our culture, and it's true in every culture. Now, if somebody were to come up here wearing that police uniform and they weren't really a police officer, what would that be? A crime. That's what it would be. You would be thrown in jail for that. And Rome was no exception to that. We've seen the togas that they wore, right? And we kind of have toga parties and think that's kind of fun. But in that culture, it meant something. In fact, it meant that you were a citizen of Rome. And if you wore a toga as a citizen of Rome without being one, it was punishable by death. It was that important. Clothing communicated something. And so Paul, in the context of the church, is concerned about what's being made, what statement is being made within the context of the church. And he speaks to the men specifically to begin with. He, he talks about something that they should not wear because if they did, it would dishonor their head. Now, we got to go back to verse 3 because their head is Christ. So something that the man does is dishonoring Christ. Now, the reason this is hard is because we translate in verse 4, every man who has something on his head. Well, literally, in the original text, that means having down from his head. I don't know what that means, okay? So, again, it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter what it is. What matters is what it communicates. And I do think we can get some clues from the context to help resolve what this issue is. And, in fact, there's even some carryover into ours. If you were to watch a movie where somebody's involved in pagan worship, even think Darth Sidious. <laughs> what are they wearing? The hood, the black hood, right? Well, if you go back into history and you look at Corinth and you look at the pagan practice rituals, what you're going to find is that's exactly what they wore, this hooded robe during pagan worship. And so what Paul is saying is, men... If you do the same and wear that same type of garment when you're praying and prophesying in the church, you are dishonoring your head, which is Christ. And do you see why? Because by compromising themselves and sharing in that practice, basically you're making the statement, the two are one and the same. Worshiping the pagan idols, worshiping the God, same thing. What a dishonorable thing, because it's not. But this, the clothing makes the statement that it is. 
He says, don't do that. And then he turns to the women, and theirs is just the opposite. It's not what they shouldn't wear. In their case, it's what they should wear. Something that would cover their head. Because, again, they say, because leaving their head uncovered says something that's dishonorable about their head. Which, again, going back to verse 3, is who? Their husband. Right? The head of the man, the man is the head of the wife. There is a role of headship there. And so something that she doesn't wear communicates dishonor. Now, what's happening within this context from what we understand? And, and let me say this. It goes even further and, and, and explains this. It says, so dishonorable that it'd be like shaving her head. Now, we hear that and we go, what in the world is he talking about? Well, in that culture, when someone, either man or woman, was caught in the act of adultery, if, if they were having an affair, that was the punishment, shaving of their head. And so what he's saying is, it's of such dishonor, it equates to having been caught in adultery, it, the bringing the utmost, the ultimate shame to both her and her husband. And so that's what he's speaking to. Now, again, we don't know exactly what he's talking about, but what we do understand is this, in their culture, when a woman were to, was to wear her hair up and cover it, it was a sign of modesty, a sign of purity, okay? To let her hair down is like the idiom suggests. <laughs> Go ahead, let your hair down. It, it was a sign of independence, a sign of freedom to do whatever you want to do. And, and so Paul apparently is, is looking at this reality and saying, what you wear communicates something about how you feel, about where your heart is. And for a woman in that context, to wear something or present herself to where she was independent from her husband, that she was free and available to anyone else, would be the ultimate in dishonor to him. And Paul's saying that's not right. Because God designed things to function in a certain way. I think very likely it was this prideful opinion that we see all throughout the letter so far which said, I can do what I want to do. This is what's best for me. And Paul says, that's not the way the Christian faith functions. Look at what he says beginning in verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. And indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but Woman for the man's sake. Therefore, let the woman, uh, therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So let's walk through this. Paul moves from conduct that brings shame to now behaviors that bring glory. There's a shift going on here. He is trying to give them instruction on how to align their lives with the design of God. He goes back to verse 3. I told you it was the foundation of this entire section because he's going to begin at the beginning. Creation. When God created man in his image. And you'll remember when he created man, he gave him authority over all his creation, right? And one of the ways that we know he was given that authority is because God instructed Adam to go and name each of the animals. That's a, an act of authority, to name each one of those animals. And he does, remember? And then what was the result when he went through the entire order of God's creation? 
naming each and every one of them as the one who has authority over all of them. He found what? None suitable for him. You see, I think God had Adam do what he did to learn and discover what he already knew. And that was, it is not good for man to be alone. I'm not finished yet. Because we know that the creation goes on and he takes Adam's rib. And out of the man, he fashions a woman. And when Adam sees what God has created, he says, this is the one. This is the one that was made from me and for me. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. And when the woman was created, creation was complete. To the point that because of what God had created in the woman, what was not good now became very good. It's a part of God's design. Part of God's plan. From that point on, God's design for marriage was intended to function within this divinely ordained relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. As that man humbly, sacrificially loves his wife, laying down his life for her. And in response, that woman, his wife, loves and honors and respects him as they live in this interdependence, in the unique one flesh relationship, different roles, equal value, mutual benefit. It's the beauty of God's design. And when you live in accordance to it, you know what I'm talking about. It's filled with goodness. And that's the point. Look at uh, what he says there in verse 11. Excuse me, verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Following his design is obviously not only important for the man and the woman in this marriage relationship, not only foundational to the family itself and even the family of God, apparently there's some benefit even in the heavenly realms. Be faithful to God's design because of the angels. Now, there's a verse that immediately pops into my mind when I hear that statement. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And look at verse 8 with me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writing to the Ephesians, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to light what in the administration of the mystery, which for all ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, in order that, here it is, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. To who? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is a big deal. Don't miss this. If you've been to the doctrine class that we did, if you've been to the welcome class, we speak briefly about the doctrine of angels, and we talk about how they're servants of God, but not created for salvation. Mankind, you and I, were the only ones created in the image of God, made to be in a relationship with God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and saved by the grace of God. Mankind alone. 
the angels watch as we, as his church, display the manifold wisdom of God. And here's how I want you to picture this, and think about it as a parent. If I'm a parent, and I'm in the context of my family, I want to be very careful that my actions tell them something that I want them to know about what is true and right and good. Correct? And so I want to be careful that as my wife and I are having a conversation, especially if we're having a little disagreement, that even in the midst of that, that we're teaching them how to be respectful. That we're teaching them how to ask for forgiveness. How to be humble and careful as we go through this conversation that we're having one another. Because if those eyes are watching us, we want to teach them the right thing. But what Paul is saying is that apparently our children's eyes are not the only ones watching. Apparently the angels actually grow in their understanding of who God is and the impact of who Christ is in our life by seeing the conduct of us as his church. Now, just let this soak in a little bit. When we follow his design, the angels witness the very goodness of God built into that design, and the result in the heavenly realms is praise and worship of the God who made all things good and right. Our conduct within the church leads worship in the heavenly realms. I have never even considered that idea until I got to this passage and wondered, what is he talking about? I'm convinced that's exactly what he's talking about. The conduct of the church of Christ as we walk in obedience to the will of God and the goodness of God is seen and displayed through the work of Christ and the lives of Christ's people leads the heavenly realms in worship of the God we serve. They see his goodness, his love and his grace, and they praise him for it. Is that not incredible? Look at how he continues in verse 11 of our passage. Because however in the Lord neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originated from the man so also the man has his birth through the woman. Then all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair it is a dishonor to him but if a woman has long hair it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering but if one is inclined to be contentious we have no other practice nor have the churches of God I think this last section is important so that you don't see Paul's instruction as chauvinistic he makes it very clear men and women are interdependent upon each other They are dependent upon, one is dependent upon the other. I see this again pointing primarily to that one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife who truly are interdependent on one another. They are connected to the very deepest part of their soul. That's a part of God's design. That's not an accident. That's purposeful because of God's design. But I think even beyond that, the the very natural order of God's design tells us that if you take away one of them, the other cannot exist. They are interdependent upon one another. 
And the very laws of nature speak to that fact. And I think Paul may have that in mind. Look at again what he says in verse 14. Not even nature itself teach you that a man has long hair, it would be a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. Don't think about hairstyles here. Think about the heart behind what Paul is trying to communicate. God made both men and women. And he designed them each with a unique purpose, with gender-specific qualities. And Paul's concern is the, the outward appearance that reflects some inward condition of the heart, something selfish that, that blurs those lines of distinction according to God's design. He wants us to know men and women are not the same, and that's on purpose, and praise God for that, because we are made uniquely and purposefully for one another. We depend on each other. We need each other. And our differences are important. And when we blur those lines, we distort the very design that God intended originally. A good example of where I think this can lead is found in Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I want you to notice the similarity of the language between what Paul just said and what he writes to the Romans in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It says, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged their natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God and his design any longer, God gave them over to their depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, not natural, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You see, rejecting the very natural order of God's design, they were left to themselves and their own selfish desires. And let me tell you something. That is the worst possible judgment that you and I could ever receive from God. Please, by the mercy of God, don't leave me to myself. I need you. Every hour, I need you. I want to know your way. I want to know your heart. Because apart from you, I can do nothing. But as a result, in Romans, they exchanged what was natural for that which was unnatural, unintended according to God's design. They, they opted out of the goodness that he built into his creative order and decided instead to go their own way. Why? Because of selfish pride. It's at the core of every sin. My way. 
my right. As we finish up, I want us to be clear on what the point of this passage is all about. Paul is not establishing a dress code for the church. Do we get that? Paul is not demeaning women or limiting their role within the church. Instead, Paul is promoting the goodness of God's design. From the very beginning of creation, the way he ordered it so that relationships are filled with his goodness, built into them when we trust him and his ways. He's speaking to an inward condition that's reflected in our outward appearance. He's speaking against this attitude of prideful independence that insists on my individual rights and my personal freedoms. And Paul is saying, listen to me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and a part of the family of God, you give up that right. Because this is no longer about what's best for you. Paul said very clearly, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win some. Consider the needs of others as more important than your own. Let no one seek his own good. We learned this last week. Let no one seek his own good, but only the good of who? Others. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. What's right for me is ultimately determined by what's best for you. That's the Christian ethic. That's how we're called to live. We need to understand, in our culture of independence, our faith is not a private affair. It is a corporate reality. This is not about me and my faith. This is about us and our faith. What it means to be a family of God, carrying out the very mission of God, to the point that our conduct actually has an impact on what the angels in heaven who see us live our lives Learn about the very God in which they serve. Because the life of Christ being lived out through the hearts of his people. And and so we can look at that and we can see the church as the theater of God's grace and his goodness. Just think about that. We are the theater of God's grace and his goodness for all the world to see. And not just here, but in the heavenly realms. This has cosmic proportions do you think that's important absolutely it is so here's the question are you living within god's design or are you writing your own script are you living in god's story to the praise of his glory or have you turned it into a one-act play is your faith a private affair Or is it a commitment to a community, a body of Christ, for the praise and glory of his name? I'm reading a book I would recommend to everybody called Killing Christians, Living the Faith Where It's Not Safe to Believe. These are true stories of things happening in our world today, which we see in the news every single week. And on one hand, everything you hear is true. The atrocities, as incredibly immoral as they are, they're true. Those things are really happening in our world. But what you're not going to hear in the news is what's happening behind those stories 
within the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ who are enduring those atrocities with great faith in their God and they're seeing his mercies new every morning and sustaining them in ways that you will not hear on the news, but they are happening every single day. And one of the chapters is entitled this. It's entitled, The Only Empty Graveyard in Syria. And it's talking about a true story of some men who live in this context. These are leaders in a church, an underground church. It's underground because people are going door to door. And they are telling you, you either confess Islam or we kill you. And it's not just any normal death. I won't go into the details, but it's brutal. And it's happening every single day. And this is the life that they live. Well, they're in a restaurant in Damascus. Damascus apparently has the world's largest restaurant. This is where they're at. But there's only about six people there. Because the city is completely war-torn. They're actually talking about the prophecies in Isaiah that look at Damascus and say, one day, which has not yet happened, it will be completely uninhabited. And they're wondering themselves, as Syrians who live in this city, is that day coming soon? Because there's not much left. And in the midst of this conversation, here come some more bombs, almost causing the building to land on top of them. They flee for safety. There's no, they don't have any transportation. There's no taxis that would even go near this part of the city. And so they're left alone. Somebody comes and rescues them. They finally get to a place where they meet with the leadership of this underground church, and they have an honest conversation because they realize the difficulty that this causes not only on them, but their families. They have kids. They have wives. And so these leaders meet together and they make a commitment. Listen to this conversation. Farid, who's one of the characters, opened his hands and spread them toward the group. There's about 12 people in this room. Leaders, about 10, I mean, 10 men representing 10 families in this church, underground church in Syria. Uh, he says, his plan for you may be different from his plan for me. That is okay. There's no pressure to decide one way or the other. None of us is trying, are trying to be heroes. We want God's will for us and for our families. Whether we stay or go, we take Jesus' message of love and forgiveness with us. A dozen men nodded in concert. Basically, they've come to a place where they've said, look, if we stay here, the chances of us dying is very, very high us and our family. So we just need to be honest before the Lord and let's have a, they, they called on a fast. And for the next seven days, we're going to pray and fast about where the Lord would lead us. And you can tell he's given them permission. Hey, you go where the Lord is leading you. Nobody feel any pressure to do anything. We want to do what God puts on each of our hearts. So free, closed his eyes, raised his hands above his head. Now let's pray and be dismissed. Seven days later, chaos still reigned in the streets of Damascus. Gun battles consumed a dozen square blocks along Farid's first route to the follow-up meeting, and damaged roads slowed progress on his alternate route. He arrived 30 minutes late, wondering if he would walk into an empty room. Although he had been serious when he said no one <coughs> should feel pressured to stay, he hoped at least one or two others would have come to the same conclusion he had. He would face martyrdom alone if it came to that. But having fellowship with a few other believers in the meantime would be an encouragement. Fareed descended the steps from the sidewalk and paused at the door. He grasped the doorknob, turned it slowly. The dim light appeared as the door swung open. Fareed's jaw dropped. Twenty-five men stand seated on the floor looking at him. The ten leaders from last week's meeting had returned along with 15 new disciples. 
And every single one of them committed to stay in that war-torn city. The empty grave is a plot of land that they agreed to purchase so that when they were killed, that's where they would be buried, fully expecting to die as martyrs. You know, I think we hear stories like that, and, and we seem so far removed, doesn't it? But I think it's important for us to hear that because here's the reality. In the absence of persecution, the tendency is for our lives to turn inward. You put persecution into the context, and now all the things of this world really don't matter anymore. And my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ becomes of utmost importance. And fulfilling the mission of God is something I would be willing to die for. So here's my challenge for us. We don't live in Syria. Praise God. But I want us to do two things. I want us to pray for those who do. Because there are brothers and sisters in Christ who daily are enduring the reality of persecution and daily are dying because of an unwillingness to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. Pray for them. But I also want us to consider what it might be like to live lives of commitment like them, even in the absence of persecution. Instead of running away from things that are hard and difficult, that we actually embrace them as places in which God reveals himself in magnificent ways. And there are people in this church right now who are in the midst of those places. And let's be careful. Let's be careful as brothers and sisters in Christ when we recognize the realities of what's happening in people's lives that we don't separate ourselves. Let's be careful not to create a safe distance by telling them that we'll pray for them, but never really doing anything to engage with them. Let's enter in with them and carry the burden with them. I mentioned Carl and his wife moved in recently, Pamela. And I mentioned a need one day of him unloading his truck. There was a group of men who showed up, and in two hours, they had it completely unloaded. In a ma- yeah, Pamela, yeah, praise God. Uh, Shane Thomas sent me an email this week that talked about how Lance Landusky came to his house because he was having electrical problems, and he needed some help because that wasn't an area that he had an expertise in. And Lance not only fixed that problem, but noticed that their dishwasher wasn't working well, so he offered to get the parts and repair that as well. I went in to see Jean O'Brien, who you probably haven't seen in a long time because she's been homebound. She was awaiting a surgery at the time that was so risky she might not make it to the other side. And I walked into her room. You need to read it. It's in the back of the bulletin. Because I walked into her room expecting to be an encouragement to her, and I walked out the one having received a blessing. Because despite the reality of what she was facing, her countenance spoke of something completely different. And her words to me were, Christ in me, the hope of glory. I rest in his hands. I'm encouraging us as believers in Jesus Christ to live in a way that magnifies the manifold wisdom of God by seeing the life of Christ displayed in our relationships with one another, not just for the world to see, but there's an entire heavenly realm that enters into the praise of the God we serve when we live in obedience to his design. It's of cosmic proportions. Think about that this week. It's an amazing thought. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, you continue to take us to places that uh, I never 
imagined. <laughs> I've never thought about the significant role that we have as your family, brothers and sisters in Christ, living our lives in faithful obedience to you and the impact that that has, not just in the world around us, but in the heavenly realms. That, that the angels actually turn praise to you when they see the goodness of your design lived out in the lives of your people through the work of Christ in our hearts and in our minds. Father, help us to, to appreciate that importance this week. And help us to appreciate the significance of those who are in other parts of the world living daily in the realm of persecution and yet faithfully committed to you, unwilling to deny you, sacrificing their life for you. And even though that's not a world in which we live in, please keep us from being in a place where the comfort shields us from that kind of commitment. The comfort somehow turns our hearts inward and we start thinking more about what's right for me than what's best for others. Father, this week, may we be a people who were outwardly focused, others-centered, considering the needs of one another is more important than our own, that we don't just pray for people, we walk with them, we embrace what they're going through, and we stand beside them. That's the blessing of your design within the people of God, and you have put each person here for a purpose to fulfill out that promise and design in your church. May we be that people. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.